Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Peter, how are you, sir? Good. Thank you very much yourself. Yes, I'm wonderful. Um, just thinking it's our mutual friend, Alison, we've got to thank for putting us in touch. So thank you. Um, thank you, Alison. She's been very helpful, yeah. Yes. And um, after she gave me a few of your details, Peter, <laughs> I did a bit of research. And yes, you've lived uh, an interesting life, should we say. Well, depends. <laughs> to me, it was just something that rolled out in front of me as I went along, you know. Yeah, I'm the same, mate. Um, we just live our lives, don't we? And yeah, if I think if we condensed everything that we'd done, it wouldn't be that much. I mean, if our life is this big, all our ac- action stuff is probably squeezed into about that much of it. The rest is yeah. the rest is sat around watching telly or eating or sleeping or <laughs> yeah doing a boring job to get money for the next next adventure. And you were born in Glasgow, Peter? Yes. Mm. And joined the Parachute Regiment? I joined the Parachute Regiment when I was 17 and a half, yes. Yeah, how did that, how did that come around? Well, I was, uh, I ran away from home and I was living in Aberdeen. I was working on the docks and uh, one of the chaps I was working with had been an ex-RSM in the artillery. And he sort of encouraged me and I asked him about the army. And, but I'd always thought about joining it anyway. So um, I joined the army in Market Street in Aberdeen. And a, the chap tried to get me to get into the Gordon Highlanders, which is the local regiment. But um, I opted for the parachute regiment. Are you, are you a proud para then? Because they've got some, some history, those boys, haven't they? Part of the maroon machine. <laughs> What was the what was the jumps course like back then? Was it the same one I would have done when I was in the Marines? Yeah, same one. Is it? I don't know if you done the balloon jump, but we we did two balloon jumps and they followed by aircraft jumps. Yeah, that balloon jump is um, a bit of a bottle test, eh? <laughs> did you ever see anybody refuse to do it? I never actually witnessed a person, but there was a person um, on my course. I refused, and it was gone. I mean, before, he, you know, there was the embarrassment factor. By the time he got back to camp, he was on his way. Yeah. I, when... I, I never actually witnessed that. I'd, we'd moved away somewhere. We'd done a two jumps for that morning, and we'd moved off. Yeah, I remember um, I remember one of the Gurkhas didn't want to jump out of the Hercules. Yeah. And he was like a cat in the doorway, and his arms and legs out straight on the door. And the, uh, the the PJIs just had to peel his grip off and then just throw him out. <laughs> yeah. the, I think the good thing about the parachute regiment is guys join it to parachute. You know, they know it's part of the job. So you, you normally get a good bunch of guys who are up for it. Yes. Did you? Yeah, I mean, of course. And it's after you've done that first one, it's quite like there's no nerves or fear anyway, is there? You, you just crack on with it. and. I, I I found the whole thing exciting, you know. I I was obsessed with parachuting since I was a kid, and now I was getting a chance to do it for free. Yes, 
Where did you serve with the Paris, Peter? Um, Cyprus, Aden. Um, what was it? Cyprus and Aden. Mm. What, uh, and Bahrain, sorry, Bahrain as well. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of what conflicts you were involved in and, and why and, and, and what happened? Well, I, was, I was involved in uh, Borneo. I was involved in Aden. Uh, I was involved uh, with the United Nations in Cyprus. Um, that, Cyprus was the first time I'd ever been shot at, um, but it was ineffective fire. You know, it, we, it was a, a half-assed ambush, and we just drove through it. Yeah, no one got hit. No one at all. Effective enemy fire, isn't it? When someone gets hit, Aye. other than that, it's just it. It's nothing. Yeah. What was the what What was the conflict about there? Can you explain for our friends at home that might not know? Well, when I went to Cyprus, there was uh, the Turks and the Greeks were fighting each other over. It was historical who who owned part of the island and and whatnot. And eventually, uh, I was there at the very beginning of it and I was there for six months and then we left and then after we left the Turks invaded the islands you know. Peter can I just say I think you're tapping on your device. Ah yeah sorry I um, it, it's coming across on that it quite quite loud. Um yeah. are you able to put it down on something or is that is that going to be difficult? No okay oh, I, I've got the message you'll be okay. Yeah okay brilliant. Um Yes, in Aden, what can you explain for us? What was Aden around? Because you hear this from the from the older veterans a lot about Aden, and and for for our younger friends, yeah, it, it's going to be all forgotten, isn't it? Yeah, the the, the group out there, the terrorist, not a terrorist group, a dissident group, was um, a Federation for the Liberation of Southern Yemen, Flossie it was called, and they they were trained by the Egyptians up in. Um, up in North Yemen, and uh, they came into the south, and uh, there was a bit of an in insurrection around the the Radfan area, and uh, they brought uh, the Paras in, the SAS, and uh, one of the Anglian battalions. I think there were some Marines involved as well, and they sorted the, the initial situation out, but it carried on for up until 1967. And did did you see much action there? Uh, skirmishes and uh, long-distance firing. Uh, I had one close-up contact, and it, when I say close-up, um, the guy was about four or five feet away. Wow. Um, did you have to shoot him? Yes, I did. Uh, basically, we, the troop sergeant was up front, and I was the interpreter at the time. And uh, he called me forward. He says, there's some shepherds there. And I noticed they were sort of lying in a straight row, and I, I became fairly suspicious. And this guy woke up and shot the troop sergeant, and then I shot him, and then it just kicked off. Um, we had two guys wounded, and we had um, we killed five of them. How old were you then? Uh, 22. Mm -hmm. That's quite a young age, isn't it, to be involved in something so serious? I just wish I'd have been involved earlier on, because the, I feel the Army's... Sometimes not worth being in if you're not if you're not fighting. In that, you know, you get back to the UK and you get these maniacs running about looking for things to paint and places to do drill. You know, um, it was never my forty. Um, 
a big part of soldiering, but I didn't see it that way. Yeah, they call it active service for a reason, don't they? Because you're yeah. you're pretty active, and we used to call it the guys. It was funny because the the guys used to go abroad, and there'd be people left behind, and they seemed to be a type of man. Um, you'd go away, get yourself involved in a skirmish or whatever it was. He'd come back, and this guy has been promoted one rank up, ready to whip you back into shape. <laughs> Standing with a piece, they ready to rattle you up and down the square. And Peter, how did you? How did the SAS come around? Was that something you'd always wanted? No, to I, do? I I was in the de- in the depot, and I I looked out the window, and there was a guy standing there, and his face looked as if it was you know made out of leather, very deeply tanned, and he was awful, awful. To me, he was an old man. Um, I met the guy later on, but he was in his late. An old man to me then was anybody who was over 30. I mean, I'm only 17. and uh, But he was a troopy. And I couldn't understand this because anybody who was older in the parachute regiment were sergeants and sergeant majors. And I seen this guy and I, I said, who are they? And a chap says, oh, they're the SAS. And I found out about, a bit about them and I eventually asked for the transfer there. And... Was the selection back then the same as it is now? This kind of grueling. It was. It was hard. I. I. I by no means shone on the selection. I mean, I did it and I passed it. But it'd be wrong to say I'd, I'd done it with flying colours. You know, I. I got through it. That's what counted to me. And did you see much action with the SAS? Yeah, um, we were doing an awful lot in Aden at that time, and we were doing uh, an awful lot of reconnaissance in Borneo. So you had a fairly exciting day, turnaround. You did a trip to Aden, a trip to Borneo, a trip to the UK to, for retraining. And you, you were on the go the whole time. Uh, Aden, we were getting fairly involved with skirmishes there. It'd be wrong to say there were pitched battles. It was sort of long-distance shooting. Um, and, you know, we'd return fire and we'd go and see if there was any bodies and you'd find the odd one here and there. Did you... Did you did you have many casualties yourself? Um, well, I was there. There was uh, two two dead, and I made a couple of wounded. We 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 always had the upper hand. Don't forget, we had the we had the assets to go with it. You know, if, if things get too heavy, you just called in the choppers. And they, I mean, the gunships were in their infancy then, but uh, they could give you some support. But you know, we got to know the terrain just as just as well as the people who lived there, because we were working there all the time. We knew where water was, you know, there'd be water catchment pools at places. Um, so you weren't carrying gallons of water with you like it was in the early days. Yes. That water's heavy, isn't it? Yeah, well, the first stop I did, we were carrying two gallons of water each, and we were in one-gallon containers. Um, and it was heavy, you know, it was, you know, we all, all your ammunition... Your rations, everything. It was a fairly heavy pack. So, what is it then that sets the the SAS trooper apart from the the regular forces? Well, I'd like to say something here. The good guys in the SAS are no better than the good guys anywhere else in the army or in the forces. It's just just that through a selection process, there should, in theory, be less bad guys. So you, you've got a lot of people there who who are they want to do it, they want to be involved in it, and Consequently, they they finish up getting roped in and, and doing the business. 
yes, it seems to appeal to people that love to be a professional soldier. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, well, it's a, it's sort of it's a pinnacle, isn't it? As I said, the good guys there are no better than the good guys somewhere else. I met an awful, awful lot of professional soldiers uh, when I was stationed at Brecon. Good, good, solid infantrymen who knew their trade all the way through. Um, but, you know, the SES sometimes attracted the better elements of the army. Yes, yes. Was it, uh, could, any, could all the other forces, all the other services apply for the SES back then? Was that a modern thing? No, yeah, the, um, they started, um, it was mainly army. Then there was a couple of guys came from the RAF regiment. And then later on, uh, the nautical types came along, you know. And then we had guys who, it was hard to come from the Marines to the Paris. So we, what the average Marine did at that time was come out of the Army and rejoin the SES. Yeah. Yes, come out of the Navy if you're a Marine and, and then yeah. re- reapply. And they assign you a, a sort of tokenistic regiment, don't they? Yeah. So if you're a Marine, you generally assign, you you. Your your army regiment becomes the paras then. Yeah, yeah. What's the? Um, I don't know if I'm touching on dodgy ground here, mate. But it on your Wikipedia page is some says some stuff about disciplinary. Um, I, I I think I've got a chance to put that straight. I was I wasn't a bad soldier. I was a badly behaved soldier. You get some people feel they can take take your right to be called a soldier away from you because you were badly behaved. Uh, my problem lay when I, I mixed alcohol with, uh, with myself and I didn't agree. <laughs> uh, consequently, I, I get into more, of my, more than a share, share of fights. I was never disciplined in the army for army reasons. It was always for what happened outside the camp. Yeah, I can believe it. Um... Is it fair to say a lot of people growing up in Glasgow have a very tough upbringing and alcohol becomes quite a major factor later in? Well, I, I, can, I can only um, speak for the area I came from. And most disputes, and it's, you don't, I never found this out till later in life, most disputes there were solved through fighting. If you fell out with each other, you get two, you, two guys fought it out. If they weren't happy with the result on a Saturday night, it was normally a Saturday, you know, um, after the football and stuff like that. And if they weren't happy with the result, they'd have what was called a comeback, whereas they'd meet each other the next morning or the next week and settle the difference. But the great thing about it was when it was settled, it was settled. There was no animosity held after it. There was no grudges, you know, and uh, and everything just carried on. Mm-hmm. What's it like, if I may ask then, because I've very probably narrowly avoided prison myself in this lifetime. I think anyone who's a bit of a boy who's lived a bit has walked walk that sort of line at one point or another. Yeah. But I've often wondered, what's it like for a serviceman when you come from this sort of disciplined environment um, and then you, if you find yourself in prison... Yes. Is that an easy, easy is probably not the right word, but is it? Is that an easy transfer for a service person to make or is it absolutely horrible? No, I, I, I found it, I, I, I disliked the place. The, the discipline within the prison I could take, it was 
the depth that some of the guys had sank to in there. You know, you had all types, all various types of there. And some of them were professional at their own game. Um, you know, they were professional con men, professional uh, antique thieves. And then you got the, you know, the, the lesser elements who had always, always been grassed or something, as they put it. Um, and a lot of them were role-playing. They, 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 you know, they, they'd get there and play the hard man because they weren't scared of losing their mission. Whereas the average person that went in there, um, he, was, he just wanted to get out. Can you see it? But you got there was that element there who, to them, prison was status. Um, had an incident one day where one chap tried to bully me, and uh, and I pulled him into the. I was in charge of the bike shop. I pulled him in, hit him a few slaps, and he ran out. And and in front of the actual warder who was there, he started going, "Come on, come on, let's see how hard you are now." And the warder just looked, and he could see me, and he walked off to the t- toilet. So left me with this guy on my own, so I, t- <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I just finished up battering him and, and, and left it that, you know. Um, I, I, what I did find that a lot of the guys let themselves down in there, you know. They, you know, there's your self esteem. Um, you know, you mustn't let it go, um, and you're in there for a reason. And as, as I often say, if you can't pay the price, don't roll the dice. So. I finished up there. I accepted it. Um, it was a learning process for me. If I could could meet the judge who actually sent me away, I think he'd shake his hand. Um, I don't think it was any do we get this thug off the streets. I think it was this idiot needs some breathing space, you know. Yeah, it can be uh it can be a bit of a wake up call, can't it? Yeah. Being suddenly being in that environment and thinking, oh dear, I'm gonna lose my liberty here. Yeah. Um, I guess when it becomes just an occupational hazard and you accept it, that's where the the lifetime of criminality comes in, isn't it? You know, as I say, there were some. I met some decent people and decent people, but you know they've been um, deemed by society to be criminals. But some of them were there for various reasons, and and you had that element. All they wanted to do was do their time, get out and get on with their life. You had the other element, as I say, uh, they were a bit unlivable with, you know. Uh, I found them hard to, to be with, you know. And I, 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 this is not putting myself above them. I can only speak for myself, but I just found them hard to live with. Yes. I mean, I spent, I spent a weekend there listening to a guy who came into my cell and he'd been in the Paris and he must have killed, he must have killed more Indians than John Wayne over the weekend. And he'd never been in the palace. You know, he'd invented a background for himself. Can you see it? Yeah, when uh, people chat like that with me, I just smile and listen. And, and um, I, I feel really, I feel for them. A lot of yeah. people get really upset about it, don't they? But I don't. I just think, I had a guy once, I was on a night out, and I jumped in a taxi with this boat, and he turned me around, yeah, I was in the Marines. And I was like, all right. I didn't, I didn't mention my military history. Yeah, he went. Yeah, I was, uh, served at the Citadel, right? Well, anyone that knows, and and your our friend Rusty knows this. The Citadel is two nine commando. They're they're gunners. Yeah. They okay. They're part of three commando brigade. Fair enough. But it was just a bit, bit. It was just a bit sad the way this guy was. He thought that 
if he said I, he was a marine, that was more kudos yeah. than saying he was a gunner. And it, of course, it's yeah. all a bit. It all gets a bit silly. I, I I laugh at some of these guys. You know, they, they, we call them we call them Walter Mitties or Walters for short. And you know, there's, there was one cat chap the caught in Birmingham here. He'd he'd medals. He, he looked like a, a South American general. You know, he'd medals for officers and men's medals because you, the officers used to get the MC. And their medal system was different at that time. And he had two rows of them wearing an SAS berry. And he eventually got pulled in under some act. And the guy was in his probably early 60s, late 50s. And what he was trying to do was impress his girlfriend. And, you know, I, I refused to get upset about her because I, I actually find them funny, you know. You get guys that really upset them. I, I don't see it. You know, this stolen honour and whatnot. You're going to get them. Whether, whether you have the law or whether you don't have it, you're still going to have these chaps dressing up, you know. Yeah. The way I see it, it's a mental illness. And if you're going to attack these people, then you're the kind of person that attacks disabled people. And that, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't make mean that you're, you've got a very balanced balance. It's different, these lads that dress up and they go and collect money with a tin. That That's a yeah. different thing, you know. I've, I've, yeah. I've challenged them in the high street and gone, you haven't served. What, why, what, oh, yeah, what it is, a quid from this magazine goes to military. Ch it's like, does it, yeah. does it bugger, you know? That's a, that's a different thing, you know, pretending to be a serviceman to commit a crime. But if you pretend to be a serviceman because you're mentally unwell, yeah, you, 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 you need help and support. You don't need big tough military thugs like threatening to kill you um I, I uh i mean i i've got medals from three different armies and i stopped wearing them because uh i'd go and own you know i'd go to the odd parade and that and guys would be pointing them what's that and they're twisting the medal around to see if your name's on it you know <laughs> and I, I started feeling a wee bit embarrassing you know hey they'd they'd have a job with me peter because i bought mine off ebay and I, I'm not joking, seriously. My, my Northern Ireland medal, I, 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 I think it's in my lad's bedroom somewhere. I, I, yeah. But when I went to one of these, um, I, I think it was some reunion or it might have been the Sergeant Blackman um, protests or whatever we were yeah. calling them, marches. And, and suddenly I had to get a medal and you can buy the Northern Ireland one on eBay. So I, I just bought one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't want to wear it but I didn't know whether like I had to wear it so I had it just tucked in my pocket and I, I I I never I never wore it but um yeah it's interesting so can we oh what I wanted to ask is when you're in the prison are sort of the other prisoners going that guy SAS like we'll leave him alone you know don't don't mess with this guy no, I, I, I didn't have any of that. I, I was very fortunate. I met an ex-Marine in there, and he was into the weights. You know, he was a, really into weight training. And I sort of teamed up with him, and he used to... I, I did all freestanding free training up till then, and he introduced me to the weights, you know. And uh, that, that, was, that was my sort of buddy the whole time I was in there. But mainly I was on my own, you know. Hmm. Yes, like... Um... Maybe like getting through selection was it? Keep your head down and be the grey man. I just I just got up, get on with it, you know. And the the guys used to come up and see me, you know. Some of my mates, you know, and uh, 
you know, they, they all they all rewarded and say, who are those guys? You know, they you know, a couple of them are fairly heavy built, you know, they they looked apart, you know. And uh, at one stage, um, you know, some of the paras came up to see me as well. It was, uh, it was people I hadn't seen for years, but they thought, he's got himself locked up there. I think I'll go and see how he is, you know. Yes. Moving on, I'm just making a couple of notes here as we as we go, mate. Um, what was it like when you saw the Iranian embassy siege and, and the, and the hostage, hostage rescue on, on the television? Did it? Did it all sort of come flooding back to you? Did you did you wish you were still serving? No, I, I was in the South African Army when that happened. I was up in Angola, and we got a couple of newspaper articles through, and uh, I was with the South African Army. And, I, you know, I looked at it, and then I, I managed to uh, get some stuff on it. And, you know, to me, it was very a very clinical thing, well carried out and well executed. Did you know any of the guys that were on that 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 operation? Well, I knew quite a few of them, yeah. Yeah. Are we allowed to say any names that are in the in the public? Well, I knew Rusty. I'd met him a few times. Um, um, and some of the guys on the balcony, I knew them to talk to you in the pub, you know, just say hello and move on, you know. Rusty's always trying to borrow a pair of gloves off people, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Rusty's the man with no gloves. I'm the man with no hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no comment. Yeah. Angola, my gosh, what what a country that has seen utter bloodshed for so many years. Currently in in peace, but it's all looking like it's kicking off down there in Africa again. Yeah. So Angola, Angola, the, the, I think the Portuguese had thirteen years of insurgency there, and the Mozambique and Angola are two of the few colonies that. The mother country just went, you've got it, you've got your freedom. You know, we're out of it. And they, they pulled out and it just kicked off a civil war, which in actual fact was fairly brutal. Um, then the South Africans came in and tried to um, sort a few things out to get the people in power that would be friendly to them. And Russia was heavily involved, weren't they? Russia, Chinese, you know. Um, it was just a, it was a wake-up call to me. I mean, I've never seen things like that in my life you know there was just there was a bridge there and underneath the bridge there was just piles of dead bodies where people had been they seemed to take them to this bridge shoot them in the back of the head and throw them over the bridge you know and it was a shallow pool underneath and they were just lying there rotten you know um it was it was a funny funny situation you know you had the mpla uh which was the communist side the fnla and you had unita um the FLA, FNLA was very influential in the North, and eventually the Cubans came in, aided the MPLA, and started pushing everybody back. Um, so that's where the South Africans then came into it. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. I worked in Mozambique, so I was there, I suppose you say, picking up the pieces after the, the Civil War. I worked with street children yeah. in, a, in a school in a place called Nakala. Yeah. And of course, the whole country's riddled with landmines. When the Portuguese pulled out, they filled all the sewers with concrete just to spite to spite the locals because they the Portuguese were obviously losing their uh, their place in paradise and they didn't like it. So they blocked up all the sewers. So everywhere you went, it just stunk because there weren't you know there weren't any toilets. Um, 
quite funny. I think I was saying this to somebody the other day. It was a shame because both Angola and the Mozambique were beautiful countries. Mm. I mean, I was flying along the Rhodesian Mozambique border one day, and I looked, and Rhodesia was just as it was then. It then became Zimbabwe after it, but it was flying along the border, and you could see that Rhodesia was totally green. And as soon, there was a border fence there, and the other side, it was just dead. It was, you know, independence has a price. And I think probably some of the colonial powers made a bit, bit of a mistake. They should have been getting these people ready for independence before they actually seized it. So they, um, so normally what happens, you get the people who have got the guns getting in power and the people who have got any experience of politics who can find themselves getting shot. Yeah, it's been bloody, isn't it? I mean, the Congo comes to mind for just utter, utterly horrific violence for years and years. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's... Africa is an exciting place. It, it is, it's, it's also a beautiful place. And, you know, South Africa, for its many faults, has managed to keep an element of stability. Uh, may, have been, may have not gone down the right road and, and uh, holding it that, keeping it that way. She lasted longer than anybody else. And what's it like being a mercenary then, Peter? What there's a bit of there's a lot of kind of mystique about that, isn't there? Maybe that's not not the right word. But to to, to be honest, uh, I think there's a lot of bullshit myself. You know, they you get guys there who are, you know, the security guards somewhere, the mercs, not mercenaries, mercs. You know, the last mercenary operation that. That I knew was we make horn in the Congo. Uh, I'm not up in any more of it, but you know it's it's a team. It's a term that's bandied about by the the press. You know, and it, um, it either glamorizes the people or demonizes them. You know, depending on what paper it is. You know. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I bet you get some right knobheads, don't you? You, you know, like. Um, when I was in Angola, there was a kid there turned up, and he, he, he wasn't a bad kid. I mean, but he, he, who, whoever sent him out there, he, you know, and I said, why are you here, son? He was 17 years old. He said, I want to get my mother a television. Don't forget the season 76. And I, I just looked at him, but, you know, as long as he was with, uh, with people that mattered, uh, he, he, would, he would take instruction and go along and do his bit. He didn't lack enthusiasm. But it was just that it was a strange excuse to get yourself involved in a civil war, you know. I want to buy my mummy a television. And is there, when you're fighting in these sort of conflicts as a mercenary, is there a general lack of rules, like you can do what you want, or is it is it just run along the same lines as the military? And, and how do the people behave? Um, a lot of them get very taken in with a movie image, you know, what you should be in that. Uh, dressing up upside down knives on the on the on the webbing and whatnot. Um the only way to run a mercenary operation is run it like the people who've got the experience at it. And that's the army or the military. Um there's there's no quick way around it. You don't get helicopters all flying in from different directions. Schwarzenegger gets out of one, Stallone gets the other. Some other guy comes out there shaving himself with a blue razor blades and uh, they get together and they just jail and get into the jungle and 
wipe, wipe out half of humanity. You know, it's, it's not like that. I mean, I found myself doing, you know, a, a bit of social work. You know, like I got landed in a town there and it was, the people were starving. And it was because the army was taking the food off them. Yeah, I, I can believe that. Where, was this in Angola? Yes. Yeah, the, the, I think people over here wouldn't understand the level of poverty there, would they? No, you, you've got to see it to believe it. You know, the, the thing that Africa's got going for it is the weather. So you can, you know, it's not hard to sleep in the ground outside and, and whatnot. But, you know, the the average Angolan there, they, they were struggling along. And actual fact, they were, a, they were a decent race of people, you know. They, and, you know, they needed leadership and it wasn't there. You know, they, they, the, the whole system had collapsed during the Civil War and it was, you know, whoever was carrying the gun called the tune. What weapons did you favour then as a mercenary? What, is there a particular assault rifle that people want to get their hands on or do you just get, get what you're given? No, I, I've always liked to get my hands on an AK and that Africa is riddled with them and there's, there's plenty of ammunition about for them. Mm. Um, and it's a steady old, it's a solid old weapon. Um, and that, that was the reason I, I favoured it. When I was in the Rhodesian Army, and we were doing cross-border operations. Uh, in one case there, I came out with more ammunition than I jumped in with because, it was, you know, it was lying all over the place where guys just drop it and run. Does it fire, is it called a short round, the, the Kalashnikov? It's a, the, um, it's, it's a 7.62 round. Yeah. But the, the FN, which was the British Army weapon at the time, or the SLR, was 7.62 a 76259 or 55 five something, and the the uh, Kalashnikov was uh, more along the lines of a, a M16 round. Can you see it? I mean, yeah. the, the thing is with the FN round, when you hit somebody with one of them, they went down. You know, it was a, I think it was 76259, I think. It was a, it was a, a hefty weapon. Um, the only thing is, with the, both the AK and the M16, you could carry a great, greater battle load than you could with the FN because the FN ammunition was fairly heavy mm. compared with the, the later versions of the, the, the Armalite and whatnot. And Peter, can you tell us any, um, any episodes from... Uh, I'm going to move on to uh, Rhodesia in a yeah. moment, but from your mercenary work, what, what, what were the kind of hot, hot moments? I... Um, I was driving along a road, and I noticed there was a hat lying on the road, those Portuguese uh, combat hats, and I stopped next to it. And I went to pick up the hat, and I went, I was right on the edge of an ambush. I wasn't in it, I was on the edge of it. So I just behaved normally. I got, <laughs> I got the truck. I've never seen a, a Land Rover <laughs> reversing as fast as that. I must have been doing about 60 miles an hour. Anyway, I got myself out of it. Yeah. Yes. Good. <laughs> so, Rhodesia then, which is now latter-day Zimbabwe, was uh, Ian Smith was the president back then, wasn't he? Back yeah. in the 70s. And he said he's uh, one of the last countries to relinquish its colonialism. Yeah. 
And Ian Smith said, if we give this country back, it will just go to bloodshed um, or, or greed or corruption, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, Mugabe took over, didn't he? Yes. So they had a puppet or a very, can we say, a suspicious leader for, 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 for the next God knows how many years until yeah. Mugabe. He's dead now, isn't he? Yeah. Um, so were you there under Ian Smith or was... Yes, I was. Uh, I was there when it was Rhodesia. And then for a while, it became Zimbabwe Rhodesia. And then it was another transformation period where it became Southern Rhodesia again, which was the original colony. And then it became Zimbabwe. Wow. And, uh, and a lot of Rhodesians couldn't recognize the Southern Rhodesian flag. It went up for a couple of months, you know. And then they, the elections took place and Mugabe got in power. Um, the, the Rhodesians tried in their own way to get a balance. But by then, the damage had been done. There'd been 15 years of war. Um, the nationalists got in power, and that was the end of it. Um, it went not too, when I say it's not the end of it, it went not too bad for a few years, and then it just slid downhill. And Peter, you were, you were in the spe Rhodesian Special Air Service. Yes. Um, the South African Police Special Branch. Yeah. And the South African Defence Force uh, 44 Parachute Brigade. Yeah. This is a very colourful military career, isn't it? Um, well, as I say, it just happened. I just, as things were changing, I just moved on. Um, I was offered a job with a working, working with, I was never in the special branch. I, I was working with the special branch wing of the Salu Scouts. I was neither a scout nor in the special branch, but I was just a, a contractor um, who worked for them. And how does the Rhodesian SAS compare to its English counterpart? Is it is it very similar or, or is it? They, they, they had all the same aims. It's just that the, the guys there were younger. Um, they were a lot younger than, you know, they were, I mean, I, I, people said I didn't like Rhodesians. You know, it's, it's, it's not true. I just didn't understand them. It was the schooling system. You know, the, everybody, they're very proud of the schools. I went to Guinea Fool, I went to Plum Tree, you know, and they, they and they had this habit of wearing their school socks with a, a underneath their camouflage. I, I, I don't know where it came from, but um, you know, you get the odd guy who just his, his camouflage would slip back, you see a, a Guinea Fool or a Plum Tree hose top, you know. <laughs> um, I think uh, a lot of that come in. Sorry, I've just had someone come to the door, Chris. That's fine. Yeah. See you later. Sorry about that. Not a problem. Um, yeah, the, 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 as I say, they were a lot younger, but Rhodesia, what they actually did, they, they were taking men from the RLI in different units, and they, they, there wasn't that SAS thought pattern as they saw it. So they, they'd do a selection course and then come into, into the squadrons and learn in the squadrons. And then they adopted this, right, let's get them from the start, from school, and let's get them thinking like SAS men from the beginning. And um, I was used to SAS guys being older in the, 
like in the British years. But um, it worked here. And those kids, they, they really picked it. And they were intelligent as well. I mean, they, they were good at picking up things like Morse and, um, you know, all the other skills like demolitions, mortars, machine guns. Uh, they were very fast on the uptake. And on the whole, it was a, it was a good unit. Mm. And what... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a, a, a question that our friends at home would um, be wanting me to ask. So what can you give us an idea of what action you saw you saw with them? What 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 were the fights about? Are you talking about in the bush? Yes. Uh, the thing about the Rhodesian Army, which uh, had something over most other armies, you grew comfortable with combat. Most of the times you went out, you were in action. And it was some of it was heavy, some of it was skirmishes, uh, some of it was camp attacks, um, and the you just grew comfortable with combat. Whereas in, when I was in the British Army, I found that all I got was a series of freaks, you know. Um, okay, you're going to such and such a place, and then you'd have to, you know, you're battling with come coming to terms with it because you've just been told, and you were thinking about you know, how you're going to go and meet your girlfriend in Glasgow in X amount of weeks' time. And so there was that, whereas the Rhodesians were at it the whole time and they, 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 they put their heart and soul into it. They believed in what they were doing. Um, and uh, as I say, the world's politics, the politicians put pressure on them and then they had to hand over because there was pressure put in South Africa who put pressure on Rhodesia. And um, at one stage, we were down to, I think it was 18 days ammunition. And this is, we better come to a solution. We'll try and get a solution. And like all other wars, the only, the only thing that solves them is politicians getting together and sorting the thing out. Yeah, it's a bit hard, that, isn't it, when most politicians are just cowards and, and those that aren't cowards, are, their hands are tied to, to do anything. Well, the Rhodesia is the only country where I've been in, where the politicians let the army get on with it. You know, no doubt there was liaison between the generals and the, and the politicians, but they left you to get on with it. They, they weren't worried about what so-and-so thought because it didn't matter to them anymore. So you had this, um, this aggression to, to try and bring the thing to a, the war to a halt, and they put everything they had into it. Mm. Was it... Was it it's a bit of a stupid question, but obviously it was gutting for the people when they had to relinquish control. Did they, they all were, They were, but um, an awful lot of the Rhodesians were sort of second generation. They'd come out there after the war. You know, there were Brits who just emigrated there. And the lifestyle was phenomenal. It was, I mean, it was, it was fantastic. You know, um, they, I mean, food was cheap, meat was cheap. The only thing you couldn't get an awful lot of was fish, you know, um, and uh, they started making their own booze. And uh, I remember they made this booze called, I think it was called whiskey, it was called Dumbarton or something. And you get one bottle, you could drink a bottle of it and not feel anything. Another one, if you took a little sip of it, you were on your back. <laughs> they started trying to do everything themselves and, and, and to be independent of other people, you know. Peter. What's the connection with Pablo Escobar? Did I get that right? There was a connection in that I tried to kill him um, and I wasn't successful at it. Um, I was confident that we'd trained enough 
it was the right calibre of person to do it. And as it happens, a mountain got in the way of, a, of my helicopter. How did it? How did it come about? How did you set out to kill Pablo Escobar? And why? And who was funding you? Yeah. Um, Dave Tompkins, a friend of mine, came to me. Who I'd met Dave in Angola, and he was wounded there, so I'd gone to see him in hospital a few times, and uh, we sort of became friends. And Dave approached me, says, "How do you feel about?" going to Colombia, I says, well, what's the job? He says, to kill pa- Pablo Escobar. I said, okay. And uh, went out there and we met two businessmen. I say again, two businessmen. Um, <coughs> and uh, they asked us if we could kill Pablo Escobar. And I said, at the moment, I feel we can. And uh, I'd like to have a look at the place and see what we're going to attack. And they were very, very helpful. Anything we asked them for, helicopters, weapons, they gave it to us. Um, we had a liaison officer with us called Jorge Salcedo, who, who was in the intelligence side of the army, and he handled everything for us. Um, so the, that's how I became involved there. And then we said, can you do it? We said, yes. He said, okay, what do you need? Go on, we will fund you. Um, in reality, we had been talking to members of the Cali cartel um, who Pablo Escobar had tried to kill. They tried to kill him. And it was it looked like a war was kicking off. And they reckoned it was bad for business. So the army was involved in it as well. And they just wanted the problem solved. They couldn't get it solved military-wise because an awful lot of people in the military were on the payroll of Pablo Escobar. For example... If you flew anywhere near pa- Pablo Escobar's uh, ranch, the people on the radar would report to him that there's aircraft about. So what we decided was to get up as high as we could on that, and we flew over these premises a few times. So when the radar uh, people reported it to them, it, it wasn't. It just looked like an, an aircraft passing over. But I was taking photographs all the time. How would you have killed him? What was the plan? It wasn't. You know, a lot of people. You know, the left-wing newspapers and whatnot. See, you know, it was just a bunch of guys who got together. The guys I had there had all been in action before. There wasn't one of them who had not never been on the trigger. They'd all done it before, and they'd all been used to fighting against superior numbers to themselves. Uh, we got there, and we trained for 11 weeks. Now, when I was in the Army, at no time did I ever get 11 weeks to train for a job. And, when, and for that 11 weeks, we trained. We, we changed every scenario that we thought was going to happen. We catered for it. We rehearsed it. We practiced it. We did a full dress rehearsal where we attacked a, a piece of ground that we, uh, we'd marked out in the shape of the, the Pablo's ranch. And, um, you know, so we went through all the motions of that. It wasn't some half arse thing that was thrown together. And all the guys I had, were, they, were all, they were all professionals. Yes. Did they come from all, all, around, all around the world? Were they, did, did you recruit them from your previous adventures? Yeah, well, a lot of them had been in the Rhodesian Army, the South African Army, um, and um, we had a couple of, a guy from the Territorial SES, um, and a couple of Australians. And w- were you going to take him out with a, a sniper rifle or something like this? No, we were just going to go in there and do a house-clearing attack on it, 
fighting in a built-up area, if you want to call it that, um, with a gunship covering it. We had the whole place colour-coded. Each room in the place was colour-coded and numbered. So everybody, as we go along, I say, what is that? That's white one. That's white two. What's the back of it called? That's black one, black two. Um, it wasn't just thrown together. A load of guys chancing it out. We, we, we had Chinese parliaments there, you know, where everybody had input. And what if this happens and somebody would come up with an idea and we'd, we'd take it. And it wasn't, it wasn't just uh, me being the boss and telling the guys what to do uh, and, and then following it. It was, they had an awful lot of input to it. How much were you going to get paid for doing this? Um, one of the movies that came out, or one of the documents that came out said we're getting £5,000 a month. I'm sorry, it wasn't that. That was a down payment they got for coming out there. Um, the salary was uh, something like seven seven thousand dollars a month at that time, with a twelve thousand uh, dollar um, bonus if we attacked a place, or twelve thousand dollars if we took off to attack the place. So they, you know, it was, it was fairly, it was fairly well paid. Don't forget, this was many years ago. Was this round about the time Escobar, he, he went a bit mental for a stage, didn't he? And he was just blowing up everybody. It was just the, he went on the rampage, you know, because he, he actually, um, he tried to get into politics and got rejected. And um, and I think there was an awful lot of DEA out there at the time. And um, I think they just wanted them out of the way. And we came along as part of their solution. As Dave, Dave Tompkins often says, they let us get on with it. And they said, we'll suck it and see. At least if something happens to them, it's not happening to us. So they knew about it. Um, it was a, Pablo had to go. It was a, it was a it, it, outside the city of Medellin, he was, he was a sort of maniac, you know. <laughs> uh, but he did an awful lot for the people of Medellin, financed by the money he made from cocaine. He built football pitches at schools for kids, put the lights so they could play football at night time. There was a, 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 that social side. But then again, as somebody said, you know, the craze used to give money to charity as well. Um, it was just the way he was. Um, and he had to go. And how long after was it that he was shot dead on that rooftop? Uh, the following year, I think, yeah. Gosh. What, what was your plan then peter in in all of your skirmishes if you'd ever got caught because some of these people wouldn't it wouldn't have been i'm guessing it wouldn't have been a a very nice ending for you well out of all the guys i was the only one that landed in that actual position and uh as i say i crashed in the helicopter and i was left up in nine thousand feet up in the mountain and uh by this time pablo had picked up there was something afoot and he was sending parties out and they were killing people for no reason at all and I, I said if they get a hold of me I'm going to have a horrible death and my third day when I was up in the mountain after it crashed I could hear Spanish voices I said to myself well here we go it's time and uh, I thought it was Pablo's boys so I just took a grenade I pulled a pin out and I had a little interdynamic submachine gun and uh, I said well if I go I'll take a few with me and that's what I genuinely thought. It's, it's, it's not moving material. I said, because if these guys get me, I'm going to die one hell of a death. So, you know, um, that was a decision I made. 
and as the guys came came upon me, they never noticed me. I was lying tucked in under a bush, and I just stuck the machine gun in his some machine gun in his stomach, and he'd, he started screaming Ricardo, Ricardo, which was one of the guys' code name. And uh, I then realised I was in fairly safe hands. Yeah. So, so sorry, just to clarify, that, that who was Ricardo? Was Ricardo was the army liaison officer we had with us. His name was Jorge Salcido, but his code name was Ricardo. Ah, uh, okay. And they what? They come to rescue you? Yeah. That was a relief, I'm guessing. It was a relief, but I, I was I was in immense pain. And what they did is they chopped down a tree. And by the time, they were very, very efficient. They chopped down the tree, and before I knew what it was, it looked like a telegraph pole. They cut the branches off everything. They strapped me on it, and they lowered me down, slid me down the tree trunk, um, and then moved on. They kept sliding me down, all the re-entrant, all the way down to the bottom. It was terribly painful. Um, what 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 was actually painful? Had you, had you broken bones and, and, and such? I mean, I'd four ribs... Well, I didn't find out till later. It was four ribs smashed at the front, four at the back. Um, all my insides, I'd given the, you know, my heart and lungs and whatnot a terrible bashing as well. I, 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 I never, it wasn't stove chest, but it was possibly as near as you could get to it. Um, and it was just, it was painful. And, uh, but as I say, those guys got me down and it, it was reassuring to know that I was going to get somewhere. But they were, I said, how, how long is it going to be? Eight hours. Right, uh, how long is it going to be? Eight hours, you know. As, as we've been down, and we come tonight uh, in a riverbed, and it started raining very heavily. The, the, the river flooded, so we we're lying in water most of the night. <laughs> uh, and then there was a little bank where they sat on the bank, and I could I had escape money with me, and they robbed it off me. They, they were counting, you know, split the opposite. I was there, but I was just, I was just glad to be out of it. I bet, Peter. Um, can you give your books a shout out before we say goodbye? Yeah, it's a, it's a reprint of the original book, No Mean Soldier. Uh, the cover, cover is there. It's a new, new cover. It's on it, and uh, we had it reprinted because it was starting to sell an awful lot again. And it came into demand quite a bit. Um, the it was a lot of people have helped me uh, with that book. And in actual fact, the people well, some people that helped me were they actually came from Workington Town um, Rugby Club, and they said, "Look, we can line up a talk for you here, and we'll help you to sell your book." So they they have been extremely helpful to me as well. Good for friends at home. We'll put a link below this video for Peter's book. So I don't need to encourage you to read it, do I, after hearing this, this story? Um, it's one like no other. What, what um, have you any social media that you want people to follow you on, Peter? Or is yeah, that the thing at all? www.petermichaelese.com Okay, I'll put, again, we'll put a link under the video, folks. Peter, uh, it... it it's just been amazing not just to meet you, but to hear your story. And I hope we can stay friends for a very long time um, and um, have you back on the show at some point, because I reckon our, our, our viewers will have a few questions that, that they'd like to put to you. Well, you know, th firstly, thanks very much for talking to me. And I'd be glad to come back on again.
um, if anything, it may help to sell some copies of my book. Yeah, that's that's what we're all about. Yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, just stay on the line so I can thank you properly when I've hit the record button off. Yeah. Um, but massive thank you for 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 coming on on the podcast and sharing your life with us. Yeah. To everybody at home, could you please like and subscribe so we can bring you more good content like this and click the notifications bell. That would be wonderful. For everyone that supported us on Patreon, massive thank you. To those at uh, Hunter level and above, you're going to see your name in the credits now. So a thank you to you. And we'll see you next time. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris.Thrall. Thank you.